Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast that's devoted to helping you to live enthusiastically today and tomorrow and every other day of your life. I am your host, Dr. Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive psychologist, a health psychologist, and the author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is The Mental Health Gym, and I'm always happy to hear from listeners with suggestions for future guests, as well as any questions you may have in the mental health and positive psychology area. As you know, we typically bring you guests who both live their lives enthusiastically and are in a position to help us to learn how to live better in various ways so that we can maximize our potential to be the best person that we can. To do so, it really requires being able to be both physically and mentally fit. And today we have a guest who is going to help us in the physical fitness area, but who by his work has helped people enhance the quality of their lives very substantially. Dr. William Young is professor of neurology at Thomas Jefferson University. He is the associate director of the Jefferson Headache Center, and he is a professor in the neurology department, very active in the training of future neurologists, and a really good guy who knows a whole lot about headache in specific. Headache is a really major issue, often untalked about, often undiagnosed, but we're going to try and change that today. So first of all, Bill, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm going to enjoy this a lot. Yeah, well, today we have a guest who is both a friend and colleague, as well as one of the really knowledgeable people in the field. Since both of us work with headache, I may know the answer to this, but some of our listeners may not. We hear terms like headache and migraine thrown around, and are, are they interchangeable, or what, what are we talking about when we talk about headache, migraine, or related terms? They are not interchangeable. Headache is only one possible symptom of migraine. Migraine can have really many of dozens and dozens of symptoms from head pain to nausea, light and sound sensitivity, smell sensitivity, brain fog, word finding problems, dizziness, sleepiness, fatigue. I could go on and on. So migraine has those symptoms, not everyone for uh, each person. And then they come and go, and sometimes, unfortunately, they become fixed and daily and sometimes, uh, you know, very severe and disabled. Well, it sounds really bad if somebody has severe migraines. How big a problem is it? I mean, how many people in the country have or in the world have migraine? Roughly one in seven people in the world have it. So that's about a billion people. And it's the number two cause of disabled days. It's not a a disease that kills you, but it disables, it incapacitates you uh, periodically. And in that way, it's one of the most impactful diseases in the world. Boy, uh, I'm sure a lot of people haven't 
been aware of that. People actually lose time from work, time from school because of migraine. Oh, very typically, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes it's, you know, a day here, a day there. But hundreds of thousands or even millions of people lose their jobs. They can't take good care of their family. They really have you know, a terrible impact in their life. Um, and that's just, you know, a part of the disease. It's a, inevitable that some of the people with migraine will have it that severe that they can be impacted like that. Now, before we started working together, I would uh, on occasion get a migraine patient referred to me because somebody said, well, you've got migraine, it must be stress. Go see a psychologist. Is stress the cause of migraine? No. Let me be absolutely 100% firm in answering that. You know, migraine is the cause of migraine. It's a disorder of pain fibers in the head and, you know, centers of nausea and light sound sensitivity um, in the brain. Stress is a trigger. Stress is important, but it is not the cause of migraine. Absolutely not. So somebody has to have a kind of a proneness in the brain for having migraine and then stress or other things could trigger it? Or make it worse, you know, make you have more frequent attacks because of stressful situation. One interesting fact is that for most people, the migraine doesn't occur at the time of stress, but really when the stress is relieved. And that's the time that the uh, the most likely time for a migraine attack. So is the the body kind of holds it together and then lets down? Is that that kind of what happens? I, th- I think that that's a hypothesis that's that seems very valid and is probably true. Well, I know aside from the work that you do in treating patients very effectively on a on a daily basis, I know that you've really been involved research wise. Uh, speaking-wise and and otherwise, in dealing with the stigma of migraine. I guess the simplest thing to ask is, what is is that a big deal? Uh, is Are migraine patients stigmatized and very much? Stigma is when society poisons your identity. They tell uh, this stigmatized person that you know, they're less worthy because they have, you know, a condition or in this case, because they have migraine. I was lucky enough to sort of stumble into an opportunity to do research on stigma migraine. And I found it was extraordinarily severe and extraordinarily important. Now, having mild migraine isn't that bad, but having the disability that comes with migraine is what society is willing to punish people for. So uh, as an example, if you have back pain and you miss work, that's acceptable. You'll get the most sympathy from your boss for your back pain. Whereas if you're missing because of migraine, you're automatically assumed to be you know, some kind of faker or some kind of person of, of low moral character because you know, you couldn't handle your migraine, control it, and, you know, you missed the work. Work function, not fulfilling responsibilities, is the driver, the principal driver of stigma. But 
you know, migraine, that's the sick headache. That sick means you can't do things because you're sick. And the, the old name was the sick headache. So it's a completely unreasonable thing to expect somebody with bad migraine to be able to function all the time. I wonder if, the, I guess it was the first question I asked, has some relevance here. As someone like myself who doesn't get migraines but, but have had headaches, you know, on an occasional basis, I've never missed work because of headache. And I'm wondering whether the, for many people, there is this confusion that if I've got a headache, that your headache is like mine, although yours may be a severe migraine and mine isn't. No two people's headaches are exactly alike. You know, and well, you know, my migraine, and I do get migraine, you know, may take away a couple of hours of sleep, uh, you know, once a month for me, you know, for someone else, they could be retching by the toilet or unable to walk or functionally blind because of the severe migraine, you know, unsafe to drive. I have a patient, a, a lovely woman who's a history teacher. She loves two things, her kids and history. And, you know, you would be proud if she was taking care of your educating your child or grandchild, you know, and she, the people at work, you know, who are so lucky to have her, her principal, you know, says, well, if you have a migraine, if you're, and you're vomiting, why can't you have, you know, your family member drive you to work and then, you know, you can get through the day and be in class teaching in that condition. She goes to work with migraine almost every day, but sometimes it's so bad, she just can't. And they, you get these unreasonable positions about you and assumptions about you taken by the people, you know, who are affected by the disability of migraine uh, along with you. And so it's employers who can stigmatize who else would be responsible for, you know, causing the stigma of migraine or contributing to it. Friends are, you know, if because of your migraine, you're missing, you know, events with your friends and social activities, family members, kids, parents. A lot of kids with migraine are told, you know, it's just a headache. You need to, you need to function. You need to go. A lot of people, adults with migraine, they identify those first stigmatizing statements as children. And the thing about stigma is there's really two aspects. One is that society is telling you over time, you know, you're weak, you're, you're not a good person, you're missing work, you're, uh, you know, and you get these messages subtly, day after day, time after time. And that stigma becomes internalized. And the internalized stigma is truly the toxic substance. And that undermines self-worth, causes low self-esteem and depression. And so you get doubly taxed for your migraine. You get this bad disease with lots of awful symptoms, pain and disability. And then you get it 50% worse because society has put you down, undermined your psychological well-being, you know, and made you feel inadequate. Uh, and I imagine, or at least I've told some of my patients, I think one of the one of the issues that contribute to it is that 
you don't have a badge as being a migraine patient. You know, there's no cast or walker or something wrapped around your head. So there's, it, it looks like you can function as well as if you didn't have the migraine. So I'm wondering, well, number one, am I correct in that regard? Yes. Migraine is one of the invisible disabilities. Another example, you know, might be depression, you know, where you can't function, but nobody sees that and they just tell you, you know, buck up. You can do it. They don't understand. You know, absolutely, as an invisible disability, that's particularly difficult for people to understand. And migraine patients have learned, you know, as much as possible, they are hiding it. You know, they they have a way of, of talking about war pain, you know, and women with migraine will sometimes, you know, work hard to try to look decent, to, you know, put on makeup so they look okay, even though inside they feel terrible. So what is a uh, pretty well-put-together migraine patient supposed to do? In other words, obviously, we have to change attitudes in society, but how is it mentally healthy to act if you are a migraine patient and have to, you know, take time off at various times or ask for accommodations or whatever? You know, I, I think one wants to be respectful and polite, but you know, you're entitled to have, you know, your disability accommodated and to be as productive as possible at work. And if a work needs to give you a little flexibility or turn down the lights, uh, you know, ask others not to wear perfume that might trigger the migraine and make it get much worse. You know, all these things are reasonable accommodations. People with pretty severe migraine can have extraordinarily productive lives, you know, if society is even willing to meet them a quarter of the way, you know, to get through their life. You know, it's okay every once in a while to get a little picked off and say society, an individual, a company isn't, you know, isn't helping and isn't getting the most out of you and is, you know, making you pay extra because you have migraine. I have a way of thinking about it. You know, I think there's something special about people who've been running around with disabling migraine and doing a lot in their lives. It's kind of like they've been wearing ankle weights, you know, and when they're feeling well and the weights come off, they're pretty amazing and they're stronger and more resilient because of what they've been through uh, and how they've managed to cope. Well, I guess that leads to the next question, because I know you've been involved in migraine advocacy work, and obviously there's a lot of work to be done to educate society, to educate the individual migraine patients, even other medical personnel I know can use a fair amount of education in this regard. So I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of advocacy efforts have, are, are being made? Well, for me, advocacy started about 11 years ago when I was invited to become the vice president of an organization that goes every year to Congress to lobby for rights of people with headache diseases, including, especially including migraine. So, you know, we've been advocating for increased NIH spending. You know, a disease that's stigmatized gets less resources. It's part of 
the sanction that society is putting on people with migraine is they don't fund research for the second most disabling disease in the world. If migraine was not so stigmatized, it would get about 10 to 15 times more research dollars than it's currently getting. That's actually a marker of the stigma of migraine. Uh, Likewise, if you have migraine, you are very unlikely to apply for disability, which means you you try so hard not to go on social security disability because your migraine is so severe that while 5.6% of the disabled days are due to migraine, only 0.3% of social security disability applications are for migraine. And even then, you know, these are some pretty disabled people. They only have about half the chance of getting accepted for social security disability, even if they're in a dark room 95% of the time, throwing up every other day, they still uh, won't get respect from the social security disability system. So uh, we're fighting for for public policies that are fair to people with migraine. Well, it's really wonderful work that you're doing. Have you seen any results at this point? Are any people in power getting swayed or is any money coming your way? Or There's been a little bit of movement on the NIH funding. Recently, we, we had a very big uh, a score, but we had to kind of go out of migraine. And what we were able to accomplish is adding to the opioid bill a part and a spend of monies to get research on controlling pain through non-addictive ways. And so the argument is a lot of people who got into opioid addiction got there because opioids were the only pain treatment that was available that had a chance of helping them, and there were no other options. So now there's research uh, for non-addictive types of pain management, and uh, migraine is going to get its fair share, I hope. Wonderful news. And I think we should point out that I think the, the headache in the migraine world was ahead of the rest of the world in, in many ways with respect to the opioid issue, that, that opioids have never been a first-line treatment or second- or third-line treatment for at least among sophisticated practitioners in, in the migraine field, that uh, it's something that was discouraged. Medication overuse has been discouraged of any form, but especially opioids. I'm sure that you don't prescribe many or haven't in the past. No, I prescribe very few, but it's not a rare reason that people end up in opioid addiction. You know, they start with migraine, they get some relief, doctors prescribe too much, and then they become addicted. Well, hopefully the tide is turning as people become more aware of it. Unfortunately, some lousy things have had to happen to some people for this for this to occur. And hopefully we can uh, make this migraine world more the leader than it is, you know, somebody who's kind of getting abused in the funding area. So I applaud your advocacy efforts. Can I mention, Ron, I hate to interrupt, but one more uh, advocacy area, which is Miles for Migraine. 
So I'm just going to get to that. <laughs> oh, good, good. I was worried uh, that that I couldn't get my plug in because I'm now the president of Miles for Migraine. When I started about six years ago with Miles for Migraine, we were the second race in Philadelphia. This year we have 18 races, walk, run, rest, because many people with migraine can't even walk two miles because of their disease. We have five education days, about six hours of learning and medical, behavioral, you know, talking to patients, uh, support groups for caregivers of people with severe migraine. We have adolescent camps where teenagers who have chronic migraine can get together, learn about their disease, separate from their parents. Their parents can get support from one another, and the kids can meet others like them and make friendships when they've been so isolated by their migraine disease. And we also have meetups and support groups. So we're growing. The next race in Philadelphia is on October 5th. Go to milesformigraine.com and learn about uh, the opportunities in your area. Great. I'm glad you, you put the date in. We're going to have this posted in advance so that people will be able, if you're in the Philadelphia area or uh, within an easy commute to it, you know, you can go sign up. And it's really an amazing day with lots of people, whether you can actually run the 10K, the 5K, uh, walk two miles, or just spend the time among other kindred spirits and being supportive. It's a wonderful day, especially if the weather is nice. Yes. Uh, how many times do people with as painful, nasty a disease like migraine get together and just feel good about themselves? Uh, an event where you get together is really what changes the world. You know, if you think about advocacy movements that were successful, like the breast cancer movement and the AIDS movement and the autism movement. It's when patients or their family members physically congregated. I don't think you can get a successful advocacy movement that really accomplishes something if it's all online and, and no in-person activity. So that's our lane, getting people together to support each other in the migraine disease. It's a wonderful event, been a part of it for many years now, and it's really great to see so many of the, aside from regular runners, aside from people who work with migraine patients, it's great to see so many of them out in support of each other and smiling and so on. Can you uh, rattle off the names of just a few of the other communities that have these so that some of our listeners who aren't in the Philadelphia area can check whether they, they've got that. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., Boston, Buffalo, New York, Chicago. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, but we're scattered all across the country. And there is a website, too, where they could find out, am I correct? Mosformigraine.com. Yes, yep. sir. Okay, great. Just have a couple of more questions. The time has flown. One, although we encourage people living with enthusiasm every day of their life, and we like to have people start growing old early and build in the habits that hopefully will sustain them for many, many more years to come. Are there any specific advice for older migraine patients, people in the second half century of their lives? that tie in with your work? 
Well, migraine is a little bit more common, you know, before 50. It's still a very common disease after 50. Even chronic migraine and daily headache is common uh, after age 50 and to, you know, the 70s and 80s. But treatment works just fine at any age. And some of the newer medicines really have side effect profiles that make them, you know, appear to be very safe, you know, often very effective for people with migraine disease and, and preventing that uh, migraine uh, attacks, whether you're young or old. Great to hear. I think the thing I'd like to uh, close with is we've talked about some of the issues like stigma and the need for advocacy and things of this nature. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the success stories, some of the breakthroughs that have been made in the treatment of migraine while recognizing there's a lot of work to be done, but quite confident that that you can tell us about some successes too? Absolutely. In the 1990s, a whole new family of medicines to treat a migraine attack called the triptans came into being, and seven of them were created, and we're still using them now with a lot of success. The field started to focus a little bit on prevention, and, and Topamax, a, a seizure medicine that works to control migraine, was discovered, and, and Botox was discovered to control chronic migraine. And recently, three new medicines that work on a pain transmitter called CGRP that's uh, particularly important for pain in the head have been discovered and brought to market. In uh, perhaps six months, there are going to be a couple of new families of treatments for uh, migraine attacks, not preventives, but aborted medications for migraine attacks. So from a medication standpoint, you know, we're starting to get more and more good news. There's some devices that have almost no side effects that you can put on during a migraine attack or use on a daily basis and get some benefit in preventing migraine. And then, you know, we're understanding more and more how to integrate a plan with behavioral care, stress management, pacing, and so forth to really be able to live a good life, you know, with any residual migraine that medicine hasn't been able to take away. Great. The reason for seeking all the additional funding and so on becomes apparent when you see some of the real success stories. And I think all of us who work in this field could tick off the names of several patients that we've seen go from really disability to having a really high productive quality of life and it really makes the work really worthwhile. So just in closing, uh, again, if you can give us, number one, the website and the date of the Miles for Migraine run, and also uh, if we've got somebody who uh, is interested in getting their headaches treated in this area, how do they go about it? Well, the website is uh, milesformigraine.org. The race is on October 5th in Wissahickon Park in Philadelphia. For migraine treatment, I work at uh, Thomas Jefferson University in uh, Philadelphia. We have six attending physicians and five nurse practitioners. Most of our 
brain power goes to you know trying to figure out for each individual patient how to make them better uh, take away uh, their migraine disease if possible and uh, help them to live well with uh, with migraine if we can't take it away great and I can vouch for the many successes that we've had at Jefferson Headache Center and can also vouch for how good a doctor Dr. Young is, and I really appreciate the fact that you've been willing to spend a part of your day-to-day educating us and hopefully helping to make the world a better place as the word about the stigma of migraine, advocacy of migraine, and the successes get further out into the world. So that's going to end our podcast for today. I want to thank you all for listening in. And next week, we will have another, I'm sure, interesting podcast that will deal with another aspect of growing older with enthusiasm, starting at a young age. So stay positive. If you have any questions or want to be in touch with me regarding uh, future guests or anything that come up in the mental health area, again, Ron.Kaiser at the mental health gym.com. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.